Before we begin, we would like to acknowledge that Toronto was founded on the traditional territory of many Indigenous nations, including the Mississaugas of the Credit River, the Anishinaabe, the Chippewa, the Haudenosaunee, and the Huron-Wendat. This meeting place is still home to many First Nations, Inuit, and Matisse people, and we are grateful for the opportunity to live and work on this land. Social media is an easy, convenient, and popular way to connect with friends, watch cat videos, and share important or interesting news widely. In fact, a survey conducted by the Social Media Lab at Ryerson University found that up to 77% of Canadians use social media daily. However, it is also an effective conduit for misinformation or the sharing of sensationalized, unverified, or completely false claims. These claims can be political or health-related and often fuel much controversy over the things that we have taken for granted before. See climate change or COVID vaccines. If you're listening to us today, you likely stumbled upon our podcast on some form of social media, whether that be Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook. Thanks to our ability to market on these platforms, we are able to connect with University of Toronto students and the wider community to share important perspectives on social media misinformation and ideas related to communicating modern science. This is Dennis. And I'm Jason. And this is episode 104 of Raw Talk Podcast. Two superstar sisters, Sandhya and Swapnamai Bathula, aka the Steam Sisters, who are both PhD students at the University of Toronto, are capitalizing on the utility of these social media platforms by advocating and promoting science and science communication through their YouTube channel, Instagram page, and many other outlets. We also got started because we found ourselves getting really excited about sharing our research, but also learning about discoveries that other scientists were making, um, and just celebrating the joy of learning and discovering. We really love that. So science is everywhere. And that aha sort of moment when you learn something is so much fun. And we learned how impactful sharing science could be through our very own journey advocating for concussion policy. It did result in the consultation opportunity for us to do with the Ontario policies and a federal subcommittee on sport-related concussion along the way. So yay for evidence-based policy. The reason why we all do this science and research is for the communities that we're working toward helping. And it really does help connect us through social media as a tool to connect us with those communities and and find those communities of support that exist. Mm-hmm. And we learn from the stories that those individuals share as well. So it's very much a storytelling and sharing platform too. Yeah. The future of science is very collaborative and social media is turning into such a great way to facilitate that collaboration. Now we hear from Dr. Anna Blakeney, an assistant professor at the University of British Columbia who studies RNA vaccines and therapies. Dr. Blakeney has a huge presence on TikTok where she has currently over 260,000 followers. She discusses how she became viral on social media and what she hopes to achieve by being active on these platforms. I guess TikTok is kind of the more weird one. I think a lot of academics use Twitter and I definitely use them quite differently. I got involved in TikTok actually as a part of Team Halo, which is an organization that was started by the United Nations Verified Initiative and the Vaccine Confidence Project. So the whole idea was to get scientists and clinicians who are working on COVID-19 just basically in touch with the general public to be able to answer any questions they may have 
have about vaccines or COVID in general. It might seem really counterintuitive to do this over, over TikTok, which you know, is like typically known as a social media platform for teenagers doing like dance memes, right? <laughs> but I think it is actually a particularly elegant platform for showing people what we do in the lab, how we make a vaccine, how we test a vaccine. My mm-hmm. mission on there is really specifically to just educate people about vaccines, as well as kind of just promote science in general. Something that I realized in kind of how my account has evolved is that I think just there's not that many people that know what actually happens in a science lab. And so it's cool to just show them, you know, this is what a lab looks like, this is what it looks like to do an experiment, and people really like it. As a scientist herself, Dr. Blakeney dives into whether social media can be an effective way to communicate science with the general public. I have a real love-hate relationship with social media in general, although I'm like very active on it. I try to minimize the amount of time that I spend on it because at the end of the day, if I spend an hour scrolling TikTok, I'm like, I'd rather be living my life than just consuming these little hits over and over again, right? There's definitely good parts of it and bad parts of it, right? And social media is just a vacuum. Unless there are people filling it with like good information. It's just going to get filled with like garbage and misinformation. That's kind of my general philosophy towards it. I feel like sometimes I could just make the same videos every single week and nobody would know the difference. It's like Groundhog's Day, basically. (laughs) That's kind of one of the problems with it, right? Is that it's so fleeting, but I do think it's really important. Like people have an interest in this stuff. And I actually think it's a really powerful way to have conversations and have an audience, right? When else do I have access to 250,000 mostly non-scientists, right? It's hugely powerful. I mean, most of the time I'm speaking to a group of students or a group of my colleagues or at a conference, right? And it's nowhere near that magnitude. The reach that you get is the really important thing about it. I guess I just feel like a duty to use it wisely. (laughs) I've experienced also on there lots of misinformation. And I would say the ratio of information to misinformation is like really sad. It's definitely possible to just like hold yourself up in this bubble and just be exposed to what you want to be exposed to. It knows you honestly, like probably better than yourself after you scroll through like seven videos. The more time you spend on there, just consuming what you want to see, you're just like reinforcing your feelings and perception of the world. Despite the ability of social media to reach a variety of audiences, there are still some drawbacks such as the prevalence of misinformation on these platforms. The STEAM sisters discuss what scientists and the scientific community can do to battle misinformation. Misinformation is a really important thing to think about and talk about when we're talking about social media because we do see a lot of misinformation there. But we also see an increasing amount of scientists who are trying to combat misinformation on social media, which we think is incredible and so, so important. We haven't been in that position directly, um, but we have made a point of it during the pandemic, as we see misinformation spread like the virus, to add to the many voices sharing science and their experiences. I mean, this really emphasizes the importance of communicating the entire process of science, Mm -hmm. because as scientists, we're very familiar with the process of science, but that doesn't mean that it is well-known or or well-recognized among the general public. So really talking about how science is done, the process, the steps to it, and the iterative process, and how sometimes 
we can get some evidence that makes us believe a certain thing and then continue that process and that is rigorous science to continue building that body of evidence and learn along the way what that narrative looks like and changes that is i think responsible science communication letting the general public know what the science process looks like the whole way through we also heard from dr merkley a political science professor at the University of Toronto who researches how elite behaviors in mass media help shape public attitudes. Dr. Merkley gives his insight regarding the intersections between misinformation, expert skepticism, and social media by first explaining how difficult it is to quantify the effects of misinformation. We don't have a lot of good research on how important misinformation is. And that seems weird to say because there's so much research on misinformation. People that endorse misinformation do so not because of the particular piece of misinformation. They do it because it it reflects, it's something that they gravitate to because of their predispositions or their personality traits. For instance, conspiracy theories. People who endorse conspiracy theories tend to be very antisocial people. So it's not about the individual conspiracy theory. They endorse it, they came across it, and they were easily swept up in it because of their personality traits. Even if you debunk one conspiracy theory, there's going to be many others because they're just predisposed to accepting whatever they, they come across along, the, along those dimensions. And so misinformation is kind of, it's, it, it's kind of like whack-a-mole. There's just, there's going to be so much of it. And the people that endorse it are very different from other people uh, in a lot of meaningful ways. And so we actually don't know how much the endorsement of that specific claim matters for a whole host of other behaviors. With all of this research on misinformation and all this concern about misinformation, we don't know how much it actually matters independent of predispositions for for lots of things. And we also don't know how, whether or not it is more voluminous now than in the past or more voluminous in in the COVID-19 context compared to other contexts, because we, we only really have proper data access to say Twitter We don't have a full accounting of other social networks in terms of data collection. And we don't have a lot of good overtime data coding all possible misinformation. We just just don't know a lot of these things. And that's kind of troubling considering all of the volume of concern that exists about misinformation. So that's just something I want to introduce as a caveat to all this is we don't really know how much some of that matters. Dr. Merkley also elaborates on the responsibilities shared by those who produce, consume, and disseminate misinformation. We can't have enormously high expectations of the average news consumer. We live in a time when people are just bombarded with a flurry of information all the time through social media, 24-hour news. It's very different than it was in the past, where everybody kind of sat down for their you know, 25-minute broadcast segment on TV. I do think, though, that we could show more skepticism of claims that that are prevalent on social media. There's one one, uh, approach that some scholars have taken recently as as a way of combating this issue on social media. And one is these kind of accuracy prompts that are are on social media, just getting people to pause and think about whether the claim they're sharing or consuming is is potentially true or not. And those have shown some promising success that uh, people often don't necessarily think too carefully about whether it might be true or not. And so just imbuing people with some more skepticism about the claims they're receiving that aren't, that aren't vetting, I think will go a long way. But again, that's not, 
it's it's up to us to design those interventions and and to find a way for that to you know be carried in the mainstream media or or for social media companies to implement it. So I don't think it's necessarily the onus is on the consumer there. We just we need to incentivize that skepticism. There are people that unintentionally propagate misinformation and and sometimes journalists can do this incidentally. So I do think, you know, if you're going to share misinformation, especially if you're an elite voice, uh, you got to you got to do your due diligence because especially elites they, they can whatever they do propagates much more fully through the media ecosystem. With great power comes great responsibility and so have to have your due diligence there. As budding scientists who use social media to both share their works and stay up to date with fast-evolving scientific knowledge, our Raw Talk team members decided to get together to share their thoughts on navigating misinformation on media. How do people feel about this tactic of labeling posts as potentially misinformation and, and linking people potentially to a more consolidated resource? Do people think that that would be effective at combating the spread of misinformation? People say things or people share things without thinking twice. For a lot of the times, in that regard, what these warnings are effective at is getting people to pause for a second and to really think about, at least for a little bit, think about the implications of what would happen if they posted or if they shared something that might be inaccurate or might be harmful. So giving them links and making sure that they understand what the actual or reality is is a really good idea because it helps people reconsider their actions that way. But I think beyond that, I'm not certain about how effective it will be moving forward. I feel like as this becomes a lot more commonplace, people will just get used to it and post regardless and see this sort of warning as another hurdle to jump through rather than something to actually stop them or give pause. Yeah, I have to agree. Honestly, I think there's kind of, I imagine, three different groups of people, those who would see the misinformation and immediately kind of recognize it as not factual, probably. Um, another group of people who are probably never going to be convinced, like if it's a conspiracy type thing, they're already deep into that. And that little notification is just to them a symbol of the big man, you know, invading their life even uh, more deeply. And then there's this third bin, it's a triage of people who actually may be influenced by that notification about the misinformation. And I think that's where we have the potential to actually stop misinformation. And in that case, I do think it's effective, like you said. I think when we think about regulation on social media, we have to remember that these social media platforms, there are companies behind these platforms. And just like in traditional media, they can regulate however they like, really. That introduces some bias as well, potentially. My first instinct when I hear like censorship on social media is that I don't know if anyone is truly capable of playing God like that. And I think like the concerns that Jason brought up, there are always going to be ulterior motives to these big tech. So like my biggest concern here is freedom of speech, essentially. (laughs) What do you guys think about that? I would agree with you, Simi, that it would be in our best interest to maintain our freedom of speech as much as possible. But with other rights and freedoms, there are limits sometimes. For example, if I write an article for a teen magazine talking about how nice Tide Pods taste, like that probably should be regulated. When it comes to affecting public health or personal safety, there may need to be some regulations. And I guess Many social media platforms decided that 
pushing people not to get vaccines counts as a risk to public health. I don't know. Do you do you think that even that regulation is too much? I mean, do you trust big tech to be transparent in their strategies, for example? And also, like, that could encourage unethical incentives in the future. Like, could pharmaceutical companies start getting involved in that and uh, providing incentives to big tech to filter that sort of information? Like, I think that gets so complicated once you start incorporating regulation at that level. What if there were some kind of oversight as to the regulation of this information provided by a third party to decide which content is misinformation. Um, because I think that's generally the approach that Facebook has said that they've taken, but Facebook still has final say about what they choose to do with that information. So do you think that mandating that sort of thing through laws is a, is a potential solution to removing that power from big tech and yet maintaining some degree of control over the content? Yes, I think I, I would prefer that. But I also think it depends on what sort of science we're talking about here. I think if it has to do with public health, that seems to be reasonable. If it's to do with non-public health related science, I think that should be untouched. Dr. Blakeney discusses whether these social media platforms and users of these platforms are doing enough to combat the spreading of misinformation. Yeah, this is a really interesting one and also a really tough one. It's basically completely unfeasible to think that the platform is going to monitor everything that gets posted, right? I've heard, you know, people talk about this and just with the number of posts every day, it's like they would need an army of people looking through this to like validate things and validate things that are reported. I mean, I would love if that was actually feasible, but it's just not. And then in a way, you're kind of giving control to the platform, right? It's like then they decide what they want to amplify or censor in a way, right? Falls on a on the community more, right? Like that's right. why all these platforms have ways where you can report comments or report people and that I think needs to be taken more seriously. It's such a gray area. Like I've, I've hardly ever, like I have reported people in comments, even in the ones that I've reported, not all of them have been deemed like violations of the community guidelines. So it seems really tough, but I would just say like, just having kind of more of like a community view around it where it's like a normal thing to like report things. I just wish that people acted online like they do in person. I think people hide behind the anonymity of being on social media and just say things and there's no accountability for like their words. And that's fine. It's like, of course, take it with a grain of salt. It's like somebody that you're never going to meet. Social media allows anybody to share their thoughts on any topic, including many scientific ones. Do you think these public discussions help consumers to think critically about these issues, or has this been less beneficial in stimulating conversation and fighting misinformation? Has social media had like a net negative or a net positive effect? That's a good question. Everybody all of a sudden is an expert on vaccines and immunology and epidemiology and virology. But in general, I guess I've really appreciated that there just is so much interest, right? And that people are trying to learn these things and get more involved. I think there are just like small things we can do to make sure that, I don't know, kind of people are consuming things in a 
socially responsible manner. Something I always say is, and you know, we can hold people accountable to this, but we can also hold other institutions like the media accountable to this, which is like, if you see something, figure out where it came from. Like, what is the source of this? If I post some sort of like factor data on my TikTok, I try to always put the like link to it in the comments so that people know like where this information came from. And hopefully most of the time, those are like peer reviewed journal articles. But if you look in like most of the ways that we get information, even from the media, even like most of the press releases, whatever, if they're about like a clinical trial or something, they often won't even cite the the paper that the clinical trial was published in. I think just like, you know, it's like always checking up on where did this data come from? Team members from the Raw Talk podcast shared similar concerns regarding source verification, not only in new media, but also in traditional media. Is that basically that you're worried about bias in traditional media as well, in addition to kind of social media? Yeah, for sure. You know, we're talking about a lot of things in social media, like misinformation and bias. But I think sometimes we forget that even traditional media, you know, going back many years now, there are there are agendas and there are some biases sometimes and you know there are certain news stations that lean one way and may present information differently than others so i also don't yeah i don't use traditional media either to keep up very much what if you were to be very intentional about the sources of your news and try to sort of cater the sources so that they're across the spectrum, you know, political and philosophical beliefs. Could that help, you know, counter that bias that you feel like you come across on media, social and uh, traditional media? Yeah, for sure. I think there are definitely, you know, good sources um, from all across the spectrum. And yeah, a, a good solution would be to, I think it's just more about being aware that these biases can exist. Well, I try to pick information from good sources, multiple of them, and, you know, look at the, uh, synthesize the evidence to make my own opinions. Just, uh, there's a lot of information out there and it's tricky to figure out which are the good sources. But I, I guess with time, then you get used to it and you start figuring out which ones are best. And I think synthesizing the information is a tricky skill as well. So I think that those are the kind of things that if the public was more, maybe more aware about it, then it might help decision making in times like COVID. Yeah, uh, Sumi, I definitely agree that having multiple perspectives to draw on on a particular topic really helps uh, me feel confident that whatever kind of conclusions I draw about that, whether it's a scientific kind of principle in COVID, like the role of aerosol transmission, for example, being able to see those debates happen in real time on Twitter, I feel have I've like benefited from that, both from the perspective of like, how can we do scientific debate in an open and cordial way, like just not trying to get too aggressive and emotional about um, the debates. On the other hand, I do think that those same forums of open discussion can sometimes elevate different voices to the same kind of like, level of expertise to a third party reading that content when really those two opinions shouldn't be weighed equally given certain background. I think we've seen a lot of people step outside their lane, uh, we can say, in the COVID 
kind of discourse. And in some cases, I think that that's valuable. But on the other hand, I think sometimes um, it has a, definitely the potential to lead us um, down some kind of misleading ways. It's a double-edged sword to have the diversity of opinions on topics in the public forum like that through social media. That's an interesting point. And now that I think about it, I do think I have some sort of preference for forum-based social media, so Twitter and Reddit. And I and it could be potentially because we're more likely to encounter diversity of thought on those sort of platforms versus Facebook or a more personal outlet where you're sort of in, in a more enclosed social circle. So I agree it comes with its pros and cons, but at the end of the day, I think you're more likely to be on, you know, the correct path towards pursuit of truth if you have that diversity of thought. Yeah, definitely. There's a subreddit called Change My View. And they have some very kind of clear rules about the types of discussion and, you know, conversations within that, that it really has to be focused on genuinely someone having a view and being open to change it. And everyone kind of responding has to be genuinely trying to change their view on that topic by presenting evidence. I think it's just the quality of discussion as a result is really, really high. So I value that type of forum as well. Speaking of debate, has anyone ever tried to fight misinformation that they found on social media by posting a reply and or flagging it or something? I used to get into heated debates with anti-vaxxers on Twitter all the time in high school. And I think I quickly realized that a heated debate isn't always going to get you to the outcome that you want. In this case, I was aiming to convince them, you know, that vaccination was important and effective. But I learned that being curious about their perspective is much more effective. And, you know, coming from a patient and kind place and truly like being curious and asking them, okay, why do you think this way? And asking them to link you to those papers that they used to um, establish their framework that will either one, convince you in the other direction or two, help you create stronger arguments for your own side. So I think only good can come out of that. And, um, you know, you can't change anyone's mind overnight, but I think it always helps to understand the other side better. Despite its issues, social media is still a popular communication and information tool. The STEAM sisters shared their thoughts on how social media can break down barriers and be an effective tool for connecting science to the public. Social media can also help us to break down barriers between the different silos of science and the general public, too. So this on social media can be kind of a possibility for real-time, multiple-way communication between the right. public and scientists and science communicators. So science on social media can be dynamic with quick feedback. So that seems to be a really, really, again, it's a very cool tool to help us mm-hmm. to do that. But really, to her point, everyone has a voice on social media. It's It's very accessible and so a lot of the communities that are often overlooked or marginalized in other avenues and arenas can have communities of support and a voice that can be heard through social media so it's it's a really nice tool to break those barriers as she was saying yeah i think some of the equity deserving groups that often don't have uh, the same access to, to presenting their voice sometimes can find that through social media but it's also comes down to a responsibility for everyone else to help amplify those voices too. We go back to Dr. Merkley, where he speaks on the importance of platform-led fact checks, as well as the value of demographic-tailored messaging. 
there are things that can work. So, so for instance, because we know that people follow the leader, having kind of elite signals from people that take COVID seriously to say, you know, get vaccinated socially, you know, do all the, do all the proper things to protect yourselves and others, uh, having conservatives, having people that are in of that group communicating those messages is important. Now, obviously, we can't create them out of thin air. And so if, if there aren't people sending those consistent signals, then we can't really rely on it in any meaningful way. A second kind of angle is to, is to construct messages that appeal to segments of the population that are, are resistant to expert messages. And so like, not everybody believes experts or trusts experts. And so just kind of bombarding them with, well, the science says this, that's not particularly helpful. You have to try to appeal to the values and beliefs of, of people that you're communicating with. So for instance, you know, when, you know, if you're trying to persuade conservatives about climate change, you know, using a social equity or, or a social justice argument isn't going to appeal to them. Maybe you can kind of pitch carbon taxes as like a free market mechanism to deal with climate change. So like there are ways that you can tweak messages in order to be persuasive to groups that are potentially resistant to them. And so scaling up these sorts of strategies is tricky. We know that fact checks do work to some degree as well. So pe- people do, you know, if they were are exposed to a fact check, they're, they're likely to be marginally corrected. We know these work and like things like that can scale up potentially in a meaningful way, but their effects don't last. And you're kind of playing whack-a-mole with all these fact checks because the number of misinformation-based claims and, and all this out there in the environment, it's just, it's never ending. There's always something new. And, and it's because the people that are driving this, it's, these aren't genuine beliefs. They're just, these are antisocial people that ju- are just spreading nonsense. And so it's very hard to just refute everything that comes out uh, of those circles. So that's tough too. What are some things that experts can do to connect with lay folk and facilitate further conversation? I think these accuracy prompts are are useful. I don't think this is something that an expert personally will just say, well, just, you know, be more careful with what you read, but it is something that could be, you know, put in articles. It could be a a thing on that's attached to that's kind of prompt to on social media. So there, there are ways of scaling up that mechanism. That's less for the individual researcher to do and more that needs to be kind of scaled upwards. I think from the messaging that we can do as experts on on these sorts of questions is just to not make things worse. And and I say that in in the sense of, you know, again, bludgeoning people with the experts say this, it shuts down debate and alienates people. And and it's just simply not effective. All it's gonna do is, is pour gasoline on the fire. There are bad faith actors out there and there's nothing you can do about them, but a lot of them aren't. They're, they're confused. They're trying to do the right thing. They don't know who to listen to. And so it means building bridges with, with these folks and, and hearing their concerns and being responsive to them and not just, you know, bombarding them with, with stats. And it means, it means communicating at a more personable level. And some, sometimes experts have have a hard time doing that because that's just not how we work, you know, you know, we, we got into this because you know, we love doing research. And so we're pers- sometimes persuaded by studies and, and stats and all that, but that's not how the vast majority of people work. Uh, and so it means communing, communicating to people with their value by, by putting their values at the forefront. 
So we need to we need to do a better job with that. Debunking works, fact checks work, like all that, you know, should be scale up, absolutely. But ultimately, it's not going to reach these people in a, in a sustained way. And so it just means kind of turning down the temperature as much as possible. As you have heard from our guests and team members on this episode, dealing with social media misinformation is a complex issue that requires many solutions to be effectively addressed. A very special thanks to our guests, Dr. Eric Merkley, Dr. Anna Blakely, and the STEAM sisters for their valuable insights on this issue. And of course, thank you for listening. If you want to learn more about social media's role in science communication and the issues on regulating misinformation, do check out the links and references in the show notes. And stay tuned for our next episode. This episode was hosted by myself, Dennis, and Jason. Jenna, Sumi, Vina, and Junaid helped out with the episode content. Helen was our audio engineer, and Nora and Jesse are our co-executive producers. Raw Talk Podcast is a student presentation of the Institute of Medical Science in the Faculty of Medicine at the University of Toronto. The opinions expressed on the show are not necessarily those of the IMS, the Faculty of Medicine, or the University. To learn more about the show, visit our website, rawtalkpodcast.com, and stay up to date by following us on Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, and Facebook at Raw Talk Podcast. Support the show by using the affiliate link on our website when you shop on Amazon. Also, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever else you listen to podcasts, and rate us five stars. 